Welcome, welcome to the Linen Suit and Plastic Tie Podcast. The podcast where we unlock the power of storytelling by talking to unique storytellers in different fields about how storytelling has affected their lives and careers. I'm Gorev. And I'm Kevin. Hey Kev, Snyder Cut came out a couple weeks ago. It was so good. It was dark. It was edgy. It was four hours long. It gave me Watchmen vibes. It gave me DC vibes. It gave me Dark Knight vibes. And it wasn't a weird amalgamation of DC elements and MCU elements. It was pure DCEU that Snyder has been building up. It was dark. It was edgier. And I think that was the essential problem with Josh Whedon's version was that he tried to make a Marvel-esque DC. And I think that's the idea of perception and audience building and essential themes that Eric was talking about last week where your audience, your brand has themes from years of building, from connections with characters. If you try to steal from other uh, companies in the 11th hour, it's not going to make that same emotional connection with the audience that's connected with your brand. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty incredible that as audience, we do have preconceived notions of how characters uh, and the world they live in are, how the overall atmosphere should feel like. And when you do try to uh, forcefully almost plant the the atmosphere, it is going to throw people off. And, and that, I think, is something that all storytellers from the biggest brands to, you know, all, all the indie storytellers, uh, we should all think about. So, Garb, why don't you tell us about uh, our guest for today? This week's guest is Alex Segura. He's an award-winning writer of novels, comics, podcasts, and more. Working with so many really cool IP, including Star Wars. Um, he is written books for Disney, written podcasts for iHeartRadio, comic books for Comicsology, and he is currently the co-president of Archie Comics. So he has a really cool writing background and really cool history in comic books. All right, let's get... So Alex, to start us off, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? What is your story? Sure. I am a uh, novelist, comic book writer, podcast writer, comic book publishing person. And I think that's a very kind of 30,000 feet definition. I've written crime novels like the Pete Fernandez mystery series, uh, science fiction like the Star Wars Poe Dameron freefall novel, uh, comic books like Archie Meets Ramones, Archie Meets uh, Kiss, uh, The Black Ghost. Um, I just launched a comic book original graphic novel project called The Dusk. Um, earlier this month, and by day, I'm co-president at Archie Comics and uh, extremely uh, lacking in sleep. That's awesome. It's such a diverse career. Like yourself, I'm a huge comic book fan, and I also started with Archie Comics and then kind of branched out as I got older. Um, Just to start us off, though, can you tell us about your storytelling style in particular? Is there any essential elements that you want to bring into every single story you tell? Uh, I, I mean, I firmly believe that every character has a piece of you. You know, everyone always assumes like the protagonist is the writer. You know, the writer's creating this character to tell their version of the story. And that is that is partially true. But a lot of times, even the villains, even the minor characters have a piece of your personality or something that you want to like put on the page. Um, 
And I really strongly believe that all story starts with character. Like if the characters aren't interesting, you're just moving pieces on a board. You know, you're just saying you're, you're just putting generic things into situations and, and that that's not going to resonate with people. People want to care about the people, you know, people want to care about these characters. They want to be invested in what happens to them. So if I had one bit of advice to new writers, it's really spend time on your characters and think them through. It doesn't mean, um, doesn't mean create a 10,000 page profile or, you know, like, you know, what kind of coffee they like, you know, just but visualize them, like have a sense of who they are, how they would act in certain situations, what their foibles are, what, what kind of mistakes they've made in the past and then let them go and, you know, have a structure for the story, but then see how these characters respond to the situation you put them in. Yeah. Uh, something I, you mentioned in your intro was being able to kind of create a character that looked like you. Uh, character you haven't really seen before and how important and I think just representation wise it's so important and having like authentic writers yeah. write characters that look like them so people can connect with more when there's not a lot of medium for them available yeah I think the you know like just speaking to like private eye novels they were mostly white and mostly male and um, I wanted to you know I I wanted to read about a Latinx character that wasn't the sidekick or wasn't like the comic relief in a, in a story. I wanted him to be the protagonist and I wanted to see his world. And I wanted to kind of share my experiences in that world with other people. And, and I don't think that just because you're writing to your experience, it means you're limiting who might want to engage with that experience. I think there's an interest. I think people are interested in exploring other places and other personalities and other cultures. I mean, one of my favorite things about crime fiction is that it, it shows you places you probably will never visit yourself. You know, just, it, you know, I can read a mystery in, set in Finland and I don't have any plans to go there anytime soon, but I can at least feel like I'm experiencing that world, like that, that place. And I think that also applies to culture and, and people. Um, so that was important. Very true. And you just mentioned a bit about uh, the kind of the unique advantages of crime fiction as a format. So I want to delve in uh, a little bit more into that as well, because you have worked uh, on a lot of the different uh, formats of stories, such as novels and comics uh, and more. Uh, so could you walk us through a little a bit about, you know, some of the unique advantages or constraints of each of these formats you've worked with? Yeah, I think the big difference between uh, prose writing a novel and writing a comic book is just the collaborative process. You know, with a novel, I'm I'm working on it by myself. Obviously, there's an editor, there's an agent, there's a publisher, but these are people that are going to chime in when the work is done or at very specific moments. You know, when you pitch them the idea or when you show them a sample, but it's not they're not in the weeds with you. Uh, so it's very much your creation, and it's uh, you're you're in charge of everything. You're in charge of the descriptions, the plot, the camera angles, the casting, it's like a, you're doing an, it's a more of an auteur situation where you're in control of the whole process as opposed to just being a piece of it. Whereas with comics, it's much more, uh, you know, I've played played music with people before and it's probably, that's the best example that you're jamming on something together and hoping that each of your contributions can come together to make something even cooler as a, as a com combination, you know? Uh, when I write a script and hand it to the artist, I have an idea of what I want it to look like, but I also want to give enough room so that the artist, when they interpret my script or my plot, they can input their own style and their own personality into it. And hopefully those little things will make it greater than what you envisioned at the beginning. Um, but it also requires a lot of letting go because um, I'm not in control of how they draw it. I'm not in control of how the letterer letters it. I can give notes and feedback, but I also... You want to give people the opportunity to flex their creative muscles too and have a stamp and have a say in the process. So 
that's the big difference. I think narrative and story and pacing, that's all that's all dependent on the space you're given. Like comics is much more like putting a puzzle together. You know, you can only do so many things on a page. You can only have so many panels on a page. You can only have so many word balloons on a panel. Um, so writing a comic book script is kind of a formula, uh, not in terms of the story, but in terms of the space you have to fill. Whereas with a novel, you can spend 20 pages describing a room. I wouldn't recommend that, but you could. You know, there's no limit. It's, it's kind of a never ending, uh, you know, aside from the limits you put on yourself, which you should put limits on yourself, but um, a comic has is much more, uh, much more structured in, in format. And um, so, yeah, the collaborative aspect and I think the, the structural aspect are two big differences. That's something we've been really exploring on the podcast, that idea of collaborative storytelling where different people bring different pieces. It's not just the writer, it's the artist, the illustrator, and they all have a way to flesh and expand the story. Could you tell us a little bit more about the kind of process as a whole from the script to the publishing of a comic book and all the people, people who touched the story along the way? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the process is, is usually, and, and I'll just take a creator owned example instead of, uh, let's assume you want to create your story, you know, have an idea. Obviously you flesh out that idea based on the characters and you create a plot. Um, and a plot can vary in length. It could be a page, like a couple paragraphs, or it can be a page by page breakdown of what you want to happen. Um, and if you're working Marvel style, which means the plot goes to the artist instead of the full script, you send that plot to the artist and you basically say, you know, you can break this down into panels as you see fit. And then I will come back later and add the dialogue and add, add the captions. And so then the artist will do, will literally will draw the comic based on the breakdown then it goes back to the writer. The writer will determine, kind of tune in and say, you know, I want this caption here. I want these, you know, I want these characters to say this and type that into a lettering script, which is basically uh, a document for the letterer to then go in and put in the word balloons and the captions. Um, and sometime between the artist being done and the lettering script, the colorist can come in and start coloring the pages. Um, and each of these stages is then routed around to other people to give feedback and give notes. And you obviously want to proofread, but that's a very basic broad strokes um, step by step. So once the lettering and the coloring are done, then you have a complete comic book. Now, you've also mentioned that uh, you've been working on uh, a comic book with NPR's Planet Money. And uh, that's kind of based on mm -hmm. a more um, uh, economics topic. Uh, and so could you tell us a little, little bit more about, you know, uh, the challenges uh, or the, the, the unique things about writing uh, such a story that is both uh, highly educational, uh, I'm assuming, and, and as well as being still being entertaining, uh, being a comic book? Yeah, so the, the story behind that is, you know, Planet Money is NPR's economics podcast. And they, they what they do is they spotlight certain things, economic topics or business topics, and kind of drill down and cre create narratives, kind of podcast narratives to educate, but also entertain. And so one of the things they wanted to explore was intellectual property uh, through the prism of comics. And basically, uh, with the high concept being, we're going to try and buy a superhero from a com com comic book company. Uh, with the idea being like, we'll then own a superhero, we can then monetize and merchandise it in the same way Marvel, DC, and all these other companies have done. Um, so they interviewed me for the first episode of the series in my role as co-president at Archie. And I explained to them that, you know, companies are not going to sell superheroes. It, it's just the IP is of great value. 
Uh, you're literally one story away from even the most minor character becoming a huge entertainment success. I mean, you look at Groot or you look at other small, you know, characters that were not major players in comics, but somehow translated into another medium. Um, and so then they had to kind of pivot narratively for the podcast and they decided, well, we're going to take a public domain hero and make it an NPR superhero and we're going to create a comic book. Um, and they found this golden age character called Microface, who was created by this artist called Alan Ulmer in the 40s. And the character basically has a huge like microphone helmet. I, I'm making motions with my hands as if I'm not in a podcast, but um, he can like throw his voice. He can, uh, he, he has like x-ray vision. It gives him a lot of audio and visual powers. And it just felt like such a perfect fit, uh, despite the kind of clunky name to have a podcast superhero be called Microface and have audio powers. Um, and so then they approached me and said, would you want to help us put the story together? And I said, sure. And um, we got Jerry Ordway, who is a legendary artist and writer who's done stuff like Superman, Infinity Inc. Oh, sorry, Infinity Inc., Justice Society, and a ton of different things to redesign the character. And um, so he, he came up with the modern look of the current microface, and that was the cover. And we built up the team after that. So uh, we have Peter Krauss doing the interiors, and Peter's done things like The Power of Shazam, Daredevil, uh, Blacking Out, a ton of, he's just a very versatile and talented artist. But I love what you say about one story away from something being a hit. And it's kind of a good commentary on how combats were formed and morphed is that a lot of combats are really a reflection of the time they're in, like war combats coming on in the 50s, things like that, where, um, where superheroes were formed and uh, Captain America fighting Hitler, things like that. Comets are such a reflection of the time they're in because they're so iterative. And it kind of goes into the need for comics to grow and change and how even though IP that might not be super successful right now could be big based on the story or the timing. Yeah, I mean, it really, the comics have been around for so long, you know, it's, it's, it's an evolving medium. And I think, you know, that whenever there's a seismic shift in the industry, people say, well, this is the end of comics. And it's, it's been proven wrong every time. I think people want these kind of stories. They like uh, graphic storytelling. And, you know, everyone has their own kind of narrow definition of what comics is, but comics is a medium. It's not a genre. You know, it's not like mystery or science fiction or fantasy or romance. Like all those things could be comics. Comics is just a funnel for stories. Um, in the same way that TV is a medium or radio is a medium or, you know, novels are a medium. So I think as long as people want to tell these kind of graphic stories and tell, tell them in a certain way that there will be a, a path to getting into readers' hands, whether it's through, you know, digital, you know, digital purchases a la carte or streaming or comic shops or bookstores or what have you people want these kind of stories. And so it's, it's, I think the challenge is how do we get new readers? How do we get new people interested in the medium? So where do you see comics in the next five years morphing and changing? Is it the digital space? Uh, no, I, I mean, I feel, I feel digital has been around long enough that we, you know, when it started up, I think there was some concern that everything was going to shift to digital, but it hasn't. I mean, there's been a significant amount of time since, you know, we, I think what we've discovered is that there are people that read comics digitally, there's people that read it in print, and then there's people that do both. I mean, I'm, I do both. Like, if I can't find a hard copy of a comic, I'll read it digitally. And, and it's the same with books. Like, I'll read an ebook uh, over a hard copy if 
if that's convenient for me. Uh, it doesn't mean I prefer one or the other. And, you know, people have space constraints and they can only have so much stuff, you know, in their respective apartments or what have you. Um, but I think as we, we've seen the digital numbers kind of become what they are and the print numbers have maintained as well. So I think over time you'll see, you know, I think there will always be a place for people that want that original comic book printing. They want to hold it, you know, in the same way that, you know, you can have your whole Spotify loaded with music, but you still want a record that you can put on the record player and kind of kick back and listen to. It has, you know, I'm not saying it's going to have a novelty value, but I think there will always be a place for print. Um, and I think you'll see creative uh, steps in formatting. You know, people, you know, go straight to graphic novel or they'll do like an expanded, you know, almost European style edition, or they'll do, you know, I've seen places that really, you know, like TKO does single issues plus the graphic novel all at once. So you can kind of figure out how you want to consume the story. Um, and that's what we're also seeing, not just in comics. It's not a singular thing. I mean, in TV, you're seeing entire seasons of shows dropped on streaming services. So, you know, as long as people are willing to consume the product, um, you know, these, these create, you know, you know uh, <clears throat> creative companies are going to produce content to allow them to consume it however they want, whether they want to, you know, go into, you know, now theaters are not as much of an option, but, you know, I, I don't think we're going to get away from people releasing movies through streaming and theaters simultaneously anymore. Like that door has been kicked, kicked open. You talked about how important it is to write stories for different mediums and understand the mediums of its European style, whatnot writing stories mm -hmm. so they interact and hit differently so it's not just like well instead of getting the print i can get the digital but maybe the digital adds something story and i think that's really important um i know we would be remiss if we didn't talk a little bit about riverdale and kind of this idea uh that we've been talking about how creating stories that last time and modernize and change um i know with archie there's kind of the new archie there's the classic archie and now we're kind of seeing riverdale grow on the CW and even in the books. I'm, I guess my question is, are all these characters at their core the same? Is Archie values the same throughout all of them? And yeah, so at the core, what are the similarities and core values of some of these key characters? Yeah, so I think what, you, what you've seen with Archie as a brand over the last decade, basically ever since um, John Goldwater stepped in as CEO, is that he introduced a level of flexibility that wasn't there before. I think people just assumed that Archie was that classic Archie, you know, like going to the chocolate shop, very sitcom-esque stories, very kind of comedy-centric. And what he slowly started to push the company towards was, you know, as long as these characters feel true to the core character, as long as you look at the character and you know that's Archie or you know that's Betty, you know that's Jughead, they can exist in any forum or any medium or any kind of story. So you can have Archie fighting a zombie apocalypse in Afterlife with Archie, but it's still Archie because it's still that kind of every man, good hearted kid. You still have the same kind of dynamics between the characters. Jughead still likes burgers. You know, all those things are still there. You can still recognize the characters, but it's a different genre. It's a different, different take, different format. And so I think once that happens, stuff like afterlife life with Archie, which is a, a futuristic look at um, Archie married to Betty and Archie married to Veronica or, or things like, um, the Mark Wade Fiona Staples Archie series, where it's a much more YA, like teen drama take on the characters, people start to be okay with the idea of the IP being kind of pulled and tugged in different directions. And I think, I mean, we've done stuff like Archie meets Predator twice. Like, you know, he's met Sharknado. It's like, 
Um, people are hungry for those kind of bonkers off the wall stories, as long as the characters are recognizable and true to their origins. You know, it's not like we're not, we're not making Archie like a serial killer or doing these terrible, you know, we're not twisting the IP uh, for the gag. You know, it's still Archie. It's still the characters we love and fans love. It's just through a different prism. And so that's, I think that really primes people for Riverdale and that take and things like Chilling Adventures or Katie Keene. So I think that's just the beginning of what you'll see with the IP. Yeah, I love that idea, you know, about how you can see the similarities. Like, you see the dynamics in Riverdale, you see it in the comic books. And as a class, classic comic book, Archie comic fan, I was, like, excited for Riverdale and then taken aback to the kind of the take because that flexibility is kind of new still. And But I, I love that idea that as long as you stay cool to dynamics, it's still the same character, just doing different things for a different audience. Are you seeing Archie branch out into more audience as well? Yeah, I mean, the TV show, all the TV shows have created a level of awareness that I don't think we've seen for some time for the brand. And I think, you know, we've made some great partnerships to also get stories into other mediums. Like um, Scholastic is doing novelizations based on the Archie characters. We're doing podcasts with Spotify. Uh, we're doing audio adaptations of some of our best graphic novels with this company called Graphic Audio. Um and we are ever present in the comic book market. So I think for Archie, it's such a timeless brand that I think being in more places so I, more often is helpful. I'm wondering why, why do you believe Archie has been so timeless? I think Riverdale and the characters, you know, for me as a reader, when I first got into Archie, it was a, kind of an escape. It was like, wow, this idealized place, this very, and not idealized in the fictional sense. It just felt very welcoming. Like you could go to Riverdale and you could be friends with these kids and you can do all these things and have a laugh and have a good time. Um, and they're just, they're just good, good characters. They're just good people. I mean, they're, they all have their kind of quirks and characteristics, but I think these are beloved characters. They're part of American Americana, but also universal pop culture, like people around the world know who they are and they appreciate the humor but also are open to tweaks and different interpretations so i think adding to that legacy whereas you know some brands they find their peak version and just stick to that like um archie on the other hand is actually adding to this tapestry of story so there's there's a take on these characters for everyone and you don't have to you don't have to absorb it all if you don't like it you can just focus on the one you want if you like classic archie there's classic archie we still produce those stories if you want something edgier, we do that. If you want something funnier, you know, every, we have a kind of entire repertoire of genre takes for these characters. And I think that really welcomes pretty much anyone. Yeah, I mean, I think Archie Comics is so unique with the relationships, especially I feel like they're very relationship-oriented stories. And you see that reflected in all the different versions. We're in an industry that's become very superhero-focused, uh, very movie oriented you can still see those relationships in every single one of the adaptations and even though as you see with like, shield and other archie superheroes come to life you still have that essential kind of family dynamic that you don't really see with other publishers sometimes you also written uh, a whole whole essay called the delectable neo-noir of taylor swift which basically where he analyzed uh, kind of the plots and the songs and uh, also her overall transformation of music style uh, from time to time. And so can you tell us also about some of the uh, storytelling elements that make these songs so engaging and how, you know, those themes relate to some of the crime novels that you notice or crime elements? 
Yeah, I, I didn't really, I didn't think I was the first to suggest that it was, it, it, it struck me as I was listening to a lot of her music and um, a lot of the elements felt very noir. And, uh, you know, noir has become this catchphrase that anyone can use, like it's become interchangeable with crime or thriller, and it's not really the same thing. The idea of noir is when someone is kind of painted into a corner and forced to make a desperate choice, what are they willing to do to maintain their status quo? And like, what to what lengths would they go to uh, prevent their life from falling apart? And so I'm listening to a lot of her, I went in listening to a lot of the music, I, you know, especially stuff like Reputation mm -hmm. and Red and her more recent albums. This was before Lover came out. Um, I just thought there were so many songs that use these visual elements of noir and these like dark narratives and it really went counter against this perception of her as this just pop queen you know this very like clean cut like um pop princess and i pitched it to a friend of mine who now works she works at rolling stone now but she worked at um a title the streaming service and we went back and forth and i just wrote the essay and it's it's got a ton of examples of different songs and how they they kind of relate to crime and how she's basically a blend between the the you know the kind of pi you know tainted night and also the femme fatale so instead of just being this mysterious femme fatale she's actually the hero um which is an interesting way to look at it when you talked about music you talked about picturing the cinematic elements that you bring into the novel and you talked about kind of the neo-noir stories behind this music that not everyone like sits down and thinks about but that's a huge reason why it resonates with people on the same level as a neo-noir book might resonate kind of idea like if you're a Taylor Swift fan, you can listen to that. I love the idea of mediums learning from each other. So to uh, bring it close to every one of our episodes, we have this segment called Suspenders. It works like this. We ask you a random fun question that's unrelated to anything, and you can give us any answer you feel like. The question of the day is, what kind of secret okay. society would you like to start? Oh, I guess like a vegan secret society. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> I don't know. Come back to Top Hat, the segment where we digest uh, the conversation we just had with, with our guest uh, this week, we talked to Alice Segura. Yeah, I think my first learning was idea about reboot culture. Everything being rebooted nowadays, some really well, some really weird, uh, some very aggressively mediocre. The ones that work are the ones that stay true to the essential characters. And this is the idea of Archie Comics and Riverdale. I was so excited for Riverdale because I'm a huge Archie Comics fan and Riverdale is so different. It's much edgier and it's much different than the boy next door, the girl next door type of stories that Archie was. But Archie Comics was always about the family and it wasn't about big explosions of superheroes. It was about the characters. And that's what Riverdale did right. Jughead still loves burgers. The relationships are still there. The core of those characters are still there. Those those relationships and themes that were time-tested over decades of Archie's history. It's a really good commentary on reboot culture. Yeah, and a, a big learning I had, and this also circles back to our conversation uh, with Kevin Burke, uh, who 
created a, a lot of the comic book animated TV series. Is that comic book writing,、uh, just like TV producing, is a collaborative process? You're 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 part of this team. Yeah, and you know, Alex has done both, but I think the concept of control there is really interesting. But with comic books, you have to give a lot of that up because it's not just about the writers; it's about the illustrators, it's about the letterists, it's about the colorists. Every single one of these people. Apply their own storytelling technique, and the story lives and dies by every single one of those people for every single book. So I think the idea of control there with collaborative storytelling is super interesting. This has been another great episode of the Linen Suit and Plastic Tie Podcast. We will see you next week.